focus. Now, before you roll your eyes at that, yes, that is a very vague title, very generic title. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of Bible verses you could use and build a sermon and say, don't lose focus, and that's your, your sermon title. But uh, today, you'll, you'll see as, it take, as we go through the text why I chose that. And we're going to begin reading Mark chapter 9, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, verse 30. And I'm reading out of the CSB this morning. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. They did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? They were silent. Because on the way, they'd been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. It's a pretty powerful passage this morning. And the one thing we can really take away from this, the one point that I hope you absorb from this message, and and I would challenge you today, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you through the word, through the message. Ask him to search your heart, because the one thing that we can take away from this is that if we are focused on ourselves, we will lose sight of Christ. I'll say that again. If we are focused on ourselves, we will lose sight of Christ. There's an old story, and if you've ever taken a preaching class, or if you're going to take a preaching class, you'll likely hear this. I heard this in my homiletics class at Trinity uh, Bible College. Um, they, They tell you this story to kind of strike fear in your heart for good reason, and and it's a Maybe a true story, maybe not. But there was this young man. He was fresh out of seminary, fresh out of college. There are variations of the story. And he ends up working for a very well-known pastor and preacher. And he gets introduced as a new staff pastor, a new associate pastor. And his chest just swells with pride. That's right, I am a pastor. I'd whip my hair back, but... You know, he, he gets this very cocky, very arrogant attitude, and he's asked to speak that day. And he's, he's so ready. He's studied this passage for months. He's written this manuscript down and poured over it for weeks. He's diced it up into little note cards and he, all the enunciations of the words. He's got it all down. He's so ready to go. And he walks up into the pulpit just, just super excited, right? And he begins to read his text. But he's doing this thing with his note cards, like you would with playing cards. And as he's reading, what happens? There go his note cards. And he just sees them in slow motion, falling to the floor. Doesn't matter. Studied the material. I know it. I'm good. I got this. So he continues to read, but then he comes across this name which he doesn't really know how to pronounce. And he fumbles through it. And he he begins to stammer. 
I, I got this. He tells himself, I got this, I got this. And he begins to preach the message, and he realizes he doesn't got this. He's very much missing those notes. And he does something. It's a great pastor's trick, great preacher's trick. They don't teach you this in Bible college, but you learn it along the way. He just begins to get right to the point and wrap it up, say a quick prayer, and he dismisses the crowd. Problem. The crowd doesn't leave. He didn't make any sense. He didn't understand this message. But he just kind of stands there in the awkward silence and goes very defeated down the steps back to his seat. And his pastor, being a well-known pastor and preacher that he is, stands up and he says, I know this text. And I know what our, what our new pastor was trying to get at. Let me help him. And so as he's preaching, he begins to preach the text. And he begins to pick up the note cards as he's talking, one by one. And he comes up and he, he grabs his Bible and he opens it up and he reads it and he begins to exegete the scripture and preach a message. And, and he closes in prayer and the church family, oh, okay, yeah, they got it. And he dismisses and they, they leave. And he goes and he sits down next to the associate pastor and, and he hands him his note cards. And the, thing, the first thing the associate pastor notices his cards were not in just some random order. He put them in perfect order as he was preaching the message. Wow. This guy knows the text. This guy knows what he's doing. He says, you know, if I'd had these, I'd have preached a good message. And the pastor says, if you'd walked into the pulpit, notes or not, if you'd walked into the pulpit with the attitude that you came down in, you would have walked down in the attitude you walked up in. You see, where our focus is really matters, especially when it comes to the Word of God, when it comes to letting it speak to us and speak through us. I love to preach. You guys know this. I, I love to study God's Word. I love to dig in and, and see what the Lord is saying to us and, and try to uh, propel that out to others. But when we preach, we do that with fear and trembling. The only thing I'm really confident in when I come up to preach is this. Whenever, I mean, yeah, okay, I can give a good speech, I guess, maybe. Um, I'm not a stand-up comic. I'm not that funny. You don't say amen to that. Um, yeah, that was kind of funny. Anyway, I know the one thing that's more powerful than anything else is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the one thing that has the power to change the hearts of men, to change the hearts of women everywhere. I stumbled across uh, an old John MacArthur sermon when Jimmy, Car uh, Jimmy Swaggart fell. Now, those of you who know who John MacArthur is, I was prepared for the biggest, ha-ha, gotcha, sermon I'd ever heard. He has written books attacking charismaticism, attacking Pentecostalism, and I was so ready just to hear him tear into the Assemblies of God because Jimmy Swagger, when he fell, was associated with the Assemblies of God. Instead, what I heard was a, a pretty good sermon. I encourage you to listen to it sometime. But one of the things that caught my ear was this. He said, over the past week, since Jimmy Swaggart fell, people have come to me and they've said, are the people who got saved under his ministry even really saved? And he said, of course they're saved. The power of the gospel is greater than the vehicle God chooses to use to deliver it. 
And I think about that every Sunday now. I've thought about it for the past six months, I think, six months ago or a year ago, whenever I heard it. I think about that almost every Sunday. The power of the gospel is greater than the vehicle God chooses to use to deliver it. You know, I'm not that great. Many of you have gotten to know me can testify to that. Ask my wife. She's got a list. You know, I'm not, but God is. His word is. And hear me on this. If we don't focus on the, if we're focused on the preacher, if we're focused on ourselves, we're not going to receive the word of God. We are here to hear Christ above all. J.C. Ryle once said, the word, the flesh, and the, I'm sorry, the world, the flesh, and the devil can never overwhelm the weakest person who sets their face toward God. You see, where our focus is matters. If we are focused on ourselves, we cannot focus on Christ. Many of you have heard me talk about Peter when he walked in Matthew 14, when he walked on the water with Jesus. Peter did something Moses didn't do, Elijah didn't do, Elisha didn't do, Jeremiah never did it, Isaiah never did it. Some of the greatest people in history, greatest prophets, Peter walks on water with God. But what cost him that moment was when he saw the wind and the waves. Well, you don't see the wind, do you? I mean, you see the effects of the wind, but you don't see the wind. And so Peter begins to focus on, really, on what? Self-preservation. He begins to focus on himself. And in our text today, for about two years, almost three years at this point, the disciples have been hearing Jesus over and over and over talking about denying themselves, taking up their cross, or not looking to themselves, but trusting in him, trusting in God. And yet, even today in our text, in Mark 9, we see the disciples are obsessed with self. That's the root of all sin, really. Self, pride, self-entitlement, self-before-others, selfishness, self-esteem, self-worth. Why does a person lust? Because they want to satisfy a fantasy involving themselves. Why does a person commit murder or steal or lie? The list goes on. It's because of self-focus. Their self deserves or needs or wants, and that's who they aim to please. Self-importance reigns in our society. No one is immune to the sin of self because that is the core of every sin. Even in those who followed Christ as humanly possible, as close as humanly possible, it fell into the disciples. And what happens in our text is Jesus basically opens their chest cavity, pulls out their heart, and he says, this is the problem. You're focused on self. Your heart is centered around yourself. And they're hardened heart, their narrow mind, this is, this is what's causing them to lose their focus on Christ because they're still trying to gain something for themselves. Who's going to be first in the kingdom? That's a problem. The same thing said of the disciples can easily said about, be said about ourselves. I hope you understand this. You write this down. If we are focused on ourselves, we lose sight of Christ. I'd ask you again, ask yourself as we go through this message, what are my priorities? Where is my focus? What are my rights that I feel I am entitled to? Are they God-ordained or is it something that I want for me, me first? Ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart as we go through this text today and speak to you as to what is your God of self. We begin in verse 30. 
Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it. Now, prior to his resurrection, this is the last time Jesus will be in Galilee. Okay, he's traveling through. He's going to tell his disciples in Mark 14, 28, when I rise, I will meet you in Galilee. But Jesus is advancing towards Jerusalem. He's advancing towards the cross. So he's passing through Galilee. This is a temporary stay, at least in the Gospel of Mark. But we're going to back up a second. Then they left that place. Well, where is that place? You guys remember last week's message. They were at the, the base of the, the Mount of Transfiguration. I, I think I said last week they were still in Bethsaida. I, I misspoke. They're actually in Caesarea Philippi. They've been there for a while. They went to Bethsaida, and then they went to travel through uh, Caesarea Philippi, and that's where he was. But now they're making their way home. Now they're making their way back to Capernaum. And Jesus is still trying to keep everything private. It says he did not want anyone to know it. He's keeping a low profile, and we know why. We've examined this quite a bit. He's had a hard time doing this because when he looks out at the crowds, he sees them. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion on them. He wants to teach to them. He wants to preach to them. He wants to bring healing at every opportune time. And so he's, he's had a hard time keeping things quiet. But now we see Jesus, he's He's actually beginning to pick up his pace a little bit. He's moving with urgency. And he's still trying to keep his head down a little bit. But they are starting their route, whether the disciples know it or not. They are starting their journey in Mark's account towards the cross. Little by little, Jesus is heading towards death. And he's gaining momentum. He's advancing more and more at this point in the story. I pointed this out a while back. Jesus is trying to keep things private. Because he doesn't want the message that goes out to be, come see this miracle worker. Come see this great exorcist. Come see this great uh, show, this circus act type of thing. He doesn't want that. Jesus is more than a healer. We've seen that over and over throughout the Gospel of Mark. He's so much greater than that. And he doesn't want half the message to be out there. So what's he going to do in our text today? He's actually going to give the message that he once preached to his disciples today, and they're not going to get it. Before this, Jesus had been uh, coming down the Mount of Transfiguration with, with Peter, James, and John, and they witnessed something incredible, but he ordered them to tell no one what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead, and they didn't understand that. Peter confessed Jesus, right? And what did he do? He strictly warned them to tell no one about him because they're not getting the full story. This all started around the time when he went to Bethsaida and he healed a blind man and he sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus is keeping that low profile because he wants the fullness of the gospel to be the message people hear. He wants the full story to be able to be accessible to the people. There's more to Jesus than just these other things. And that's what he wants. He wants the complete message preached about him. In verse 31, we read on, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. He's teaching his disciples. He's got his 12. This is not for the crowd that's following Jesus around. This isn't for the looky-loos and the the roadies and the people who want to just kind of tag along. 
These are for those who want to live his teaching, not just hear his teaching. So he's repeating in order to emphasize something he's already told them. This is the second time Jesus has made what what we often call a passion prediction. This is the second time he's predicting his death and resurrection to the disciples very clearly. Now, we know he had said something to Peter, James, and John about being risen, and so he obviously had to have talked to them about him dying as well. But this is the point where he speaks to all 12 of them, and he makes it very clear that he's going to die and be resurrected. Now, previously, the first passion prediction was Mark 8.31. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and rise after three days. Now, there's a difference, and we're going to examine the differences between the first passion prediction and the second passion prediction here in Mark 9. But the more we see this, what Jesus is doing is he's speaking very openly with his disciples about what they're heading into. This is what's coming, guys. This is what's, what we have to look forward to. And the disciples sit and scratch their heads. They don't understand it. The first, <coughs> whoa, <laughs> wow, wow. <laughs> Rewind. Can we edit that out of the... No? Okay. I'm 13. But the first time he makes uh, what is called the, the passion prediction, the prediction concerning his death, he points out the Son of Man must suffer many things. He'll be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. Now we stop just there for a second. You see it on the screen. Okay, the Son of Man must suffer many things. Well, would-be kings suffer? David suffered. David was chased by Saul. He lived in caves. He even sided up with the Philistines for a while. Ah, That's no big deal, right? We know that's probably coming. Prophets suffer. Uh, Jeremiah suffered. Elijah suffered. This is totally making sense. Okay, This this is all in line. Rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. That's another day at the office. We know that. I mean, they would hear that and say, Yeah, that's kind of already happened, man, right? They don't like you, Jesus. They send their scribes to argue with us at the foot of the mountain, all these other things. Then he says he'll be killed, and after three days, we'll rise again. Hmm. That's the part they seem to have trouble with. The second passion prediction here in our text today, he, he makes these points. He will be betrayed into the hands of men. He will be killed. After three days, he'll rise again. Now, like I said, it, it, it all makes sense that he'll suffer and that he'll, be, that he'll be rejected. But in our text today, it says he'll be betrayed. Now, some translations say he's handed over or delivered. Now, we went over that wording some time ago, almost a year ago, whenever we looked at Mark 3.19 and a certain disciple, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. The Greek word used there in Mark 3 is the same root word we see here in Mark 9. It's the Greek word parodidomai. Now in Mark 3, he uses the word paradokin as in a past tense. But here he uses the tense paradidodai. That's meaning basically the, the betrayal, the handing over, the delivering him up. It's already started. There's a present tense idea there that The ball's rolling. It's going forward. Now, if you recall, even way back in chapter 1, I mentioned this word. After John the Baptist was arrested in Mark 
114, that's paradidomites, the same thing. He was turned over. And some believe Mark is insinuating there that John the Baptist was also betrayed. Possible, but it's a moot point. Jesus here, he's saying he's going to be handed over. He's going to be given up. He's going to be betrayed. John was arrested. Jesus will be betrayed. There's a definite negative connotation to this word. Not a good thing, okay? It's, it's very rarely used in a good way. But in order for him to be killed, someone had to hand him over. Okay, so the rest of the passage is going to start to make sense in light of this, isn't it? Jesus is going to be handed over, and, and it's already rolling. There's something going on that we're not aware of. We're not told how far into the process we are in this betrayal. Not exactly. And we're not told which side of that coin Jesus is referring to. Has, has Judas's heart began to look for an out? Is he beginning to question Jesus's motives? Is he beginning to wonder when exactly this is going to pay off? Or possibly, Jesus is referring to the other side's plot. We saw that back in chapter 3 as well. Jesus humiliated the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he healed a man on the Sabbath, calling them out for their hypocrisy. And immediately, Mark 3, 6, immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. So it started way back then. But how far along is it elsewhere? See, this is where the disciples are starting to question things. This is the first time in Mark Jesus has ever mentioned being betrayed. First time he's ever been mentioned, or he's ever mentioned being handed over or turned over, however you want to translate that word. It's obviously going to cause some confusion, but it does something else. Likely begins to cause suspicion. We read on in verse 32, but they did not understand this statement and they were afraid to ask him. I don't want to know the answer to that. I don't want to know what he's talking about. I may not like the answer. Why couldn't they understand? Well, it's pretty clear. If they didn't understand Jesus was talking about himself, they should at least get this. But part of them probably didn't want to understand. Luke makes it very clear. Luke says, but they did not understand this statement. It was concealed from them so, they, so that they could not grasp it and they were afraid to ask him about it. Well, that doesn't really seem fair, right? Truthfully, to, to them, that, that doesn't seem right. They're told this and, and they don't understand it. They don't get it in the moment. Well, if they did, they might try and intervene. They might try and stop him. They may go to drastic measures to keep this from... From ever happening, or worse, they may try to die in his place rather than letting Christ die in theirs. Luke explains this later in his gospel in Luke 24. He says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and once their minds are opened, then everything begins to make sense. Then all the puzzle pieces begin to fall together and, and, and click together, and all the dots are beginning to get connected. But in this moment, everything seems blurry, everything seems off. And if they understood it, their focus might become, how can I stop this? Or they may even ask, what can I do to help Jesus? Or what part do I play in all of this? What role do I play in the kingdom of Christ? That's a common question we may even ask today. But can I suggest that the more important question we should all ask is what role does Christ and his kingdom play in my life? 
if the church in the church we often ask what can I do and that's great if you come to me and say hey what can I do we're going to sit down we're going to have a great conversation and and you're going to help Tiffany on Fridays clean the toilets and no we got stuff that can be done but the first question we should ever ask before saying what can I do is what has Christ done what is God doing you know before the the board and I decided to bring Pastor Calvin on staff. Uh, I was interviewing a young man down at Trinity, and I don't say this story to mock him or put this kid down at all. Uh, but before we got into anything in the interview, I said, it was something like this. I said, can you just, I'll give you five minutes. Can you tell me the gospel? And he said, what? I said, just give me the gospel. If, if, you, if I, Pretend I'm a teenager, and you've got to share the gospel with me. What would you tell him? And he stuttered and he stammered around it. He really struggled with it. And I kind of helped him a little bit. And, and eventually he got around to it, but it was very difficult. And I said, why did you have so much trouble with that? I said, most people can say the gospel in 30 seconds. You struggled to get it out in five minutes. He said, well, nobody's really ever asked me to explain it before. That's a problem. It's a big problem. And I'm a pastor. Now, I wish I could say it shocked me, but I've, I've met pastors who've been in ministry longer than me who struggle to get that out, who struggle to explain what the gospel is. And it's not because the definition of, of gospel is really different everywhere you go. It's not. The same gospel Paul preached, that Christ died for our sins, rose from the grave, ascended to the fathers, now interceding on our behalf. That's the gospel. That's the good news. But many have taken the gospel, they've warped it into some sort of business practice or mission statement that that reflects the world around them and it doesn't reflect the cross. Church, if we don't know that good news, if we don't let it change our lives, if we don't understand and fully live in the freedom that Christ died for our sins, was raised from the dead three days later, ascended to the Father, we don't get that. If that doesn't change our lives, how can we expect that to change the lives of others? How can we expect it to change the lives of those we, we speak to and share it with? If we don't know what the gospel is, how can it change us? How can we expect to change a community or, or, or change the, the world around us? You see, whether we realize it or not, the disciples in this passage just heard the gospel. That Christ, the Son of God, was going to die, be killed, and three days later will rise. And they miss it. And Luke seems to indicate they were meant to miss it. Their minds weren't permitted to understand it. But those of us who call ourselves Christian, our minds, our hearts, our lives, have to be open to the life-changing power of the gospel or we miss everything. That's to be our focus. That's our message. That's the thing this nonprofit organization, as the government recognizes this, that's the thing we sell. We give it away for free. Some of you have heard me say that a message or a sermon that doesn't present the gospel in one way, shape, or form, and by the way, I just snuck it in there, see? Any sermon that doesn't bring us to the cross, if it doesn't mention the gospel, if it doesn't offer that to someone, it's not a sermon. I heard a pastor from Chicago say something to the effect of, One day I was preaching a message, seven ways to have a holy marriage. And I realized afterwards, I didn't really give them the gospel at all. What am I doing here? Well, you're giving them a motivational speech. If someone brings a loved one that they really have been praying for and and 
and interceding on behalf. They just need this loved one to, to hear the gospel just one time. And they come and the, the preacher doesn't give that truth to them. They've heard a motivational speech. They've not heard the transforming power of God. What greater message is there for the church to share? What greater thing is there for our lives to focus on? We have the, the only one who shed his blood for our, for our lives, for our eternity, die on a cross for our sins. And too often, just like the disciples, we see ourselves, we put our focus on ourselves, and that causes us to lose sight of Christ. You see, the disciples, their confusion will lead them to look inward. We read on in the next passage, next verse, verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? Now, if you recall back in verse 28, they'd also entered the house. Uh, This isn't one of those contradiction things. It could be they were in a separate house back in Caesarea Philippi. could be the disciples talk about this as well in the house with Jesus. Uh, Why they couldn't cast that demon out, we're not really sure. Remember, there's not a lot of chronological order to the Gospels necessarily, but the theme, and that's why the writers do that. But Jesus enters a house. Now, it's probably Peter's house, and I'll explain why I believe that in a moment. But this this is a time where Jesus goes in. He's going to rest. He's going to speak to his disciples. They're in their home region. They're safe. They're tucked away. And he's told them about his death, his resurrection. And they... Then he confronts them. He says, what were you arguing about on the way here? Now Luke, whenever Luke talks about it, he actually says in a much harsher tone, an argument started among them about who was the greatest of them. How many of you have ever traveled with your kids when they start to argue in the back seat? They start to fight. Imagine Jesus was just kind of like, I just want want to get to Capernaum. Don't make me turn around. You think he didn't? No, Jesus didn't do that. But they follow him on the way to Capernaum, and, and he goes into the house, and he, he begins to rest. I'm not going to go too far into the Greek like I did earlier, but the word that both Mark and Luke use when, about their argument is the word we actually get our English word dialogue from. Now, when you have a dialogue with someone, it can be an argument. It can be a debate. It can be a heated discussion. It can be a very intense back and forth. But the purpose is You're passionate about something, they're passionate about something, and we want to understand one another. That's typically the idea there. So regardless, Mark tells us Jesus is the one who who takes the initiative to open this can of worms up. And so he says, what were you arguing about? Now in Matthew, he says it differently. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, so who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Luke doesn't even have a discussion. He leaves it moot. So we have to ask, well, why, why is there a differing account? Well, it's likely, to be fair to Matthew, it's probably just how he remembered it, right? So he writes it down that way. We're not really told on, or we don't really know why there's a, a difference there. Either way, the point is, Jesus knows their hearts. There was an argument on the road, and Jesus is going to address it. Their silence in Mark and Luke seems to indicate they were very cautious about this. Maybe they... Maybe they really don't want to hear all the extra details about it. But they don't deny that it occurred, and we don't really see Jesus rebuke them for what's being said. Verse 34 says, But they were silent because on the way they'd been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. There we go. There we've got to it. This is their focus on their self. Who's the best disciple? 
Who's the greatest? Mark tells us they're silent, probably because they're a little embarrassed. I would be. Possibly they were even feeling convicted about the topic, so they, they keep it, they're, they're quiet about it. But we've seen, this tells us where their focus has been. This whole road trip, they've been looking at self. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? When Jesus rises to the throne, what do you think your role will be? Well, I think my role will be this. Peter, James, and John, they probably had a good idea where they stood, right? They'd been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They'd prayed closest with Jesus. I imagine they were a little smug in the discussion. Mm, I know where I'll be, you know. They do all the fun stuff with Jesus. Andrew probably felt he had some entitlement in the kingdom. After all, he'd, he'd been with Jesus since around the time of John the Baptist. Come and go a little bit. He's one of the first two disciples Jesus called. Well, Peter, you might get to do all the fun stuff, but I've been around just as long. So he's entitled, right? He would think. Even Judas, we're told. Well, he's, entru- he's entrusted with the group's money. John 12 says he was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of it. So maybe in the discussion, they thought, well, Peter, James, and John, they're going to be like Jesus' cabinet members. Andrew, you can be speaker of the house. Judas, will let you be treasurer, but we're going to keep an eye on you. Okay? John, John had pretty good take on this, I'm sure, because he's the beloved, John the beloved, that's what we call him. He talks about himself that... Uh, One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus, John 13, 23. So Jesus clearly has an affection for John. He makes sure years later, we all know Jesus loved him, right? He tells us, he said, this is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things, who's written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Yeah, okay, John, calm down. He's cornered the market. If anybody's going to be vice president, it's going to be John. No wonder they're wondering about this. Someone's going to betray him, right? They argued about who's the greatest. If someone's going to betray him, if, if I'm not the greatest, what role do I have? Because surely the one who betrays him will be one of the least of us. Ah, there we go. Connecting the dots again. The disciples' pride. Who's the greatest? Who's the best? I don't want to be the worst. I don't want to be thought of as less than. They'd done miracles. They'd healed the sick. They'd cast out demons. Were they keeping score? Well, I healed more people than you did this week. Ha ha. I I cast out more demons than you did. Guess I win the pool this week. No. Maybe they did. Peter could always pull that. Well, at least I walked on water with Jesus. Where were you guys? Cowards sitting in the boat? whole thing goes on and on i'm sure see the thing is nobody wants to be the least but what jesus is going to do he's going to flip it all upside down and he's going to say that's the one thing we should strive for that's the one position we should seek he brings their priorities he he, like i said he it's like he takes out their heart in front of them And he shows them, these are your priorities, and they're wrong. And he turns it upside down. Verse 35, it says, Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. And we notice Jesus sits down a lot, right? 
When Jesus sits down in Scripture, our ears should perk up. This is the posture of a rabbi when he's beginning to teach. And notice, specifically, notice who he calls to himself, the twelve, the disciples. This is teaching specifically for them once again. Because they're the ones who need to hear it first and foremost. They're the ones who've been arguing amongst themselves. They're the ones who've been going back and forth on the road. And notice, again, Jesus isn't mad at them. He's not rebuking them here. In all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus doesn't seem to scold the disciples for this. He doesn't rebuke them in anger or anything like that. Because his previous statement is what started the conversation to begin with. So in a sense, he's, he's probably taking responsibility here. He's, he's going to explain and, and, and flesh it out for them a little bit. He's taking this opportunity to teach. And what Jesus is about to tell them, like I said, it, it flips the idea, the power dynamic that the world has completely on its head. One commentator, Kim Tan, in the New Covenant commentary on Mark, he says, being great is not having the ability to command others to serve, but to be the one who serves all. True greatness must always be tied up with a servant's heart. In other words, if the disciples knew this, if they grasped this concept, their discussion on the road would never have happened. That's not to say that maybe the argument wouldn't have been, well, who's the least then? Because if I'm the least, that means I'm the greatest, right? No, I'd be completely missing the point. Now, later in chapter 10, Mark's going to kind of circle back to this. But for now, the point is, Mark is making very clear, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Later in John's gospel, Jesus himself is going to be the illustration of this. The night before, I'm sorry, the night he's betrayed, he's going to take a towel and tie it around his waist. And he's going to fill a bowl full of water and he's going to begin to wash the disciples' feet. He says, you call me teacher and Lord and you're right for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You have to understand To wash someone's feet was such a low thing that Jewish slaves were not permitted to do this. So Jesus is making himself as a Jewish man, a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish teacher who they call Lord. He's lowering himself even below the lowest of the slaves and he's washing their feet. That is being a servant of all. Of course, he's already predicted the links. He's already told us even in today's text the lengths of which he will go to serve all. He says they'll deliver him into the hands of men and they'll kill him. But in the immediate, Jesus does something else. He performs a, an illustration, a sermon illustration, if you will, within this house. Verse 36, it says, He took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, okay, pause right there for a second. All the dads in the room, when you read this, is there a part of you that goes, whose kid is that? Right? You ever just, where'd this random kid come from? You ever just come home? I'm, I'm just going to talk to the dads for a second, okay? Ladies, tune me out for just a moment. Not, all, not the rest of the message. You ever come home and there's other people's kids in your house? Whose kid? Tim, I know this has happened to you, right? Come home. Whose kid is this? In, whose kid is this? Jesus just grabs, just pulling children out of the walls. Where'd he get this kid, right? Well, it's likely they're in Peter's house. This is Peter's kid. When they would go to Capernaum, it's likely Peter's home. And so we know Peter's married. He has a mother-in-law. He's probably got a family. 
And so Jesus takes this small child and he puts him right in the middle of the room. Remember, they're in a house. They're where people can, can see this kid, right in the center of everybody. He says he put him in the midst of them. And we often see this in our illustrated Bibles and in pictures. Jesus has this kid just sitting on his lap, smiling. He's so happy. This kid is probably embarrassed. In fact, the Greek tells us, it seems to indicate this is a toddler. This is a kid who could barely stand on his own. And Jesus has him standing in front of 12 men, sweaty, tired from the walk, probably a little disgruntled with one another, probably feeling a little miserable because now their teacher's calling them out. And this kid's just sitting there, I'm sorry, standing there. What did I do wrong, right? If he's a little redheaded kid, that's what he's thinking. What did I do wrong? Just trust me on that. But then Jesus gets down. He does something pretty powerful. He doesn't put the kid on his lap. He kneels down. He, it says he embraces. He's, he takes him in his arms. So Jesus gets down on the same level as this kid. He has to. He's a toddler, right? He's, he's probably only about this tall. So Jesus gets down. He takes him in his arms. And he stands there with him. You know, so many times we... We look at this passage and we, we think about childlike faith and things like that. That's not really what Jesus is getting at here. You have, you have to understand, in, in first century Palestine, children had no rights. We see them as precious little things, cute little examples of trust, and, and that's what your illustrated Bible would have you believe. But really, in this era, sure, kids were treated as people, but people with, without status, they were easily ignored, brushed aside. I'll say that again, because Jesus says we should be like this. They were treated as people without status. Paul alludes to this later in Galatians 4. He says, now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So a child is someone with no status. A child is someone with no rank. They have no place of importance within their home. Now, that's not to say they weren't loved. Children were obviously loved. All through the Bible, we see examples of parents loving their children. Jacob loved Joseph more than all of his other sons. Caused some problems, if you're familiar with that story. But he did. He loved him. Jacob's dad, Isaac, loved his son Esau more than he loved Jacob. I think Jacob learned that from somewhere, right? And also, that caused some problems, if you're familiar with that story. But loved his kids. Hannah loved her son Samuel. Jephthah loved his only daughter. Abraham loved both of his sons. Not to say that kids weren't loved, but they didn't have important status. They had no specific rights. They were nobody's master. They were nobody's boss. The point Jesus is making is the one who doesn't seek status or is without status, they're the ones of importance to the Father. Now Matthew says in his His passage, he says, Truly I tell you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, like I said, over the years, we've taken that to mean many different things, that we should have a childlike faith or the trust of a child or even the wonder of a child. But that's not what Jesus is saying. We missed that point. Yeah, we have to have faith. not saying that. But the point Jesus is making is that if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be willing to give up your rights like a child. 
Become like the child who has no rights, no status, no authority. Be willing to give up your position of importance. And finally, Jesus says, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. To receive someone as a Christian, this is vital. This is important as to who we are. We're told to be hospitable. We're told to be welcoming. In fact, that's actually one of the prerequisites for being an elder in the church or being the pastor of a church. First Timothy tells us this, so does Titus. Peter tells the early church in 1 Peter 4, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Paul tells the Romans, Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And so what does Jesus say? Whoever receives one such child. He's not referring to just letting random kids into your house, by the way. He's saying a child of his. Someone who has forsaken their status and and is serving him. Often the custom in this time was that it's not a big deal to allow someone into your home if they had equal status with you. If you saw them as on the same playing field, the same par as you. And to have someone of greater standing into your home, that would be a big deal. That's a privilege. That's why some of these people wanted Jesus to come over to their house. He was greatly respected. They could advance their social status by having him come into their home. And that's why so many times they would probably be glad that he left because some of the things he said they didn't like to hear, right? But we're to open our home to someone we have nothing to gain from. That's what Jesus says something more about your status. That's actually a message in this era that you would not want sent. And so what Jesus is doing is he's flipping the hierarchy of status and, and rights and prestige all on its head. It's the most natural thing to receive Jesus or the Father into your home, but he's saying to receive him or the Father, we have to receive someone who has no status. We have nothing to gain by being their friend. We have nothing to gain by having them over for a cup of coffee or for dinner. Hospitality can be a lot of things. Doesn't mean maybe you've got some animals in your house and they don't really smell the greatest and you don't want to have company over. That's okay. Meet somebody outside the house. Being hospitable, being kind to people and receiving them in his name. That's powerful right there. Because we know that a, a person's name is more than just a title. It represents their character. It represents their identity, their position, their will. When we pray, when we conclude a prayer in Jesus' name, that's not magic words that we say, so God, now you got to do it. That's, that's not what we're doing. We're saying your will be done. We're praying in your name. Your will be done, not my will. In your name, in your will. They're synonymous. And when we receive someone in his name, we are doing it as though we are acting on his behalf and we want to honor that person. That's how we receive people in his name. The same as welcoming him. And the writer of Hebrews also speaks to this. He says, let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. The intention is simply this. We give up our status, and we have no problem loving others regardless of their status, inviting other people into our homes, into our lives. Their rank, their position, that's not our focus. Christ is our focus. We don't want to advance ourselves. We're not, we don't, we're not looking at ourselves. We're looking at the cross. We're looking at Christ. 
because of him, because of that, because of the transformative power of the gospel. That's why we're able to love others. So John says, we love because he first loved us. See, when we get caught up in our own selves, our own status, we cannot see Christ. We cannot focus on him. We look for our own advancement rather than advancing him. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up forward to close us out this morning. And as we worship, if you want to go ahead and stand, I'd ask you to ask the Holy Spirit once again, where's my focus? Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to search your heart out. If someone were to come along, if the Holy Spirit were to come along and examine your life, where would he say your priorities are? If someone were to go through your web history, your text messages, your social media, Every detail of your life, what would they say is the focus of your life? What's your life point others towards? I've said this thousands of times. Your life imitates your theology. What is your life imitating? What do you believe about Christ that's being reflected in your life? So ask the Holy Spirit as we worship today. Like I said, if you want to go ahead and stand, we're going to close and worship, and I'll come up and dismiss this in prayer. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you this morning. Where is my focus? Is it on Christ or is it on me?